0: Get up every morning from the mockingbirds Call and lace your boots up and head to the forest There's a coomer of a dove in the treetops up above And the songbirds who sound like a chorus And if your bonox are fine you can look up in that pine And see a little bird of black and yellow If you lose them in the brush just don't think of it too much You're in the woods and one lucky fellow And I'll be looking for a warbler Every day, looking for a warbler Every way, looking for a warbler It's in flight, looking for a warbler And looking over time, look out! (laughs) Hello, and welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast, a podcast that's serious about birds, but nothing else. In each episode, I either talk about an individual bird species or interview someone. Um, today I'm kind of doing a little bit of both. Um, I'm very excited for today's episode where I'll be talking about Backman's Warbler. I'm recording right now from First Landing State Park. Um, I'm in the midst of the swamp right now. I mean, there's like cypress trees water. You may have heard that frog right there, and this is the perfect setting because uh, for Backman's Warbler, as we'll talk about later on in the show, this may have been, you know, I definitely it existed here at some point in, in history, I mean it's some of its ideal habitat, and it also may have been one of the last areas that it persisted in, um, as I'll mention, so Very cool place to be in, definitely gets me in the mood to talk about Backman's warbler and unfortunately, probably extinct bird. This specific species was suggested by listener Tanner, uh, who we'll hear from later on in the show as we talk about his search for rediscovering the species. I also need to give a shout out to Mark, um, who over a year ago asked me to do an episode on warblers. Uh, Mark, I'm finally getting around to it. Uh, I'm sorry it's an extinct warbler. <laughs> I'll be honest, I'm kind of intimidated by the warblers. There's just so many of them, so many subtle differences in them. Like, I feel like I'm not qualified to really talk about them. But here we go. Here's my first, you know, dip in my toe in the swamp um, about uh, Backman's warblers. Um, Also, a big shout-out to this guy, Paul Hamill. Um, He has this book he did about Backman's Warbler and published it online. Um, It's called Backman's Warbler, a Species in Peril. It's amazing. You know, basically, he did a lot of the work for me. You know, he went through and researched every single account and, uh, kind of compiled it together in, in one book. So, um, shout out to Paul Hamill. Y'all should check this out if, uh, you know, you liked this, uh, episode and want to learn some more. The Bachman's Warbler calls used in this show come from the Macaulay Library. Uh, from what I could tell, these are the only four known recordings of Backman's Warbler. I, I very well could be wrong. They were recorded by Arthur A. Allen and Peter Paul Kellogg. Um, just so you know, the Macaulay Library, like, <laughs> in case you guys uh, have some kind of copyright on these. Um, I, I, You know, I didn't see anything on their website about, you know, do not use for, you know, non-commercial use or anything like that. Um, you know, I don't make any money off of this show, so <laughs> please don't sue me, you guys. <laughs> Um, another quick digression, it's been a while on the show since I've busted out the old handy-dandy National Geographic book of birds I have from the 1930s. Um, I'll be busting it out on this show because it contains some descriptions from people who actually saw the bird. There's actually a whole section detailing Arthur A. Allen and Kellogg's journey to record bird sounds. Unfortunately, it makes no mention of recording Bachman's Warbler, mostly it just focuses on uh, their long and eventually successful quest to record the Ivory-billed Woodpecker. Speaking of woodpeckers, there's a downy kind of chittering away <laughs> right above me. And on cue a uh, biplane flying over the swamp too. They must be getting a good view. <laughs> Man, that little downy just hammering away. Um, I'm going to start by describing this warbler. Um, So for a warbler, Backman's warbler was described as being on the larger side and also appearing plump. In both the male and female, the face, underbelly, and above the tail are a nice bright yellow color. Pretty similar to a lot of other warblers. It also had some yellow on the wings too. On its back and on parts of its wings it has more of an olivey green color. Females have a bit more brown on their back than the males do and both the males and females sport a gray cap, but in the male there's some black on the front of this gray cap. The real big distinguishing feature between males and females is that the male sports on his breast this black spot that I've seen described as a cravat. I really like this description Um, I mean it honestly it kind of looks like more of like a big blotch than it does like you know a a cravat but like I just love this because like you know a cravat it's that fancy little scarf that preppy rich boys like Fred on Scooby Doo wear Um, (laughs) and I just love it like this you know bird is like summering up in Nantucket or something (laughs) wearing its cravat Um, so this is like a really important field marker you know for the male that helps distinguish it from other warblers. They had a nice dark brown eye. Um, also, a very distinctive feature of these birds was its down curved, thin, and sharp bill. Very abnormal for a warbler. Most warblers have straight bills. So, like, you know, you saw a warbler with a down curved bill, it was a backman's pretty much. Um, the bill was brown above and light blue underneath. They also had a large white spot in the middle of each tail feather. The female was smaller than the male. And also lacks a yellow frontal band on the forehead that the male has. Some similar-looking warblers are the Tennessee warbler and the hooded warbler. Um, the hooded warbler looks a lot like it because the hooded warbler, you know, true to its name, it's got this like kind of black hood. Um, so it has a similar, you know, black blotch on its breast. Um, however, this like connects up to a hood that you know goes along the size of its head and up to the top of the head. Um, honestly, it more gives the appearance less of a hood to me and more like the hooded warbler is wearing a yellow mask, like, you know, Robin in the 1950s, like a superhero mask. Um, so that's a way to tell them apart. And then the Tennessee warbler looks very similar to the female Backman's warbler. Um, but a big way to tell them apart is the Tennessee warbler has a white eye stripe. The Northern Parola is also a really common bird confused for Backman's Warbler, because not only does it look very similar to the female, but also sounds really similar to the male. Here's Backman's Warbler, and here's the Northern Parola. Honestly, looking at pictures of these, um, the female Backman's Warbler and the female Northern Perula, especially in their fall plumage, look very, very similar. Um, especially, you know, when you're looking at them from below, which is how you see most warblers. But apparently the white wing bars on the Northern Perula are the way to tell them apart from female Backman's Warbler. Another jet. of really cool right now there's a hawk um i think it's a cooper's literally circling right above where i am right now um and i heard a northern flicker give a alarm call um i'm not sure if i'll be able to edit it in because there was like a jet flying over right when it did it but um then all the birds just went silent when it started circling right around where I was. I don't know if it was checking out me or <laughs> it's all a bird that might look good, but super awesome. It, it just flew off now. So, you know, like all warblers, there's tons of subtle differences between back men's and a lot of other ones. So honestly, if you're serious about going out and hunting for it, um, study hard and good luck. Because as we'll talk about later, even expert ornithologists have been fooled by look-alikes and sound-alikes. Studies of the skins of collected specimens of Backman's Warbler have shown a lot of differences in that black throat patch on males, um, with older males having larger throat patches. Uh, sort of like an old man having a longer beard. Um, the black throat, I mean, really, it's marvelous. Uh, yeah, I, I love it so much. There's a picture of a male backman's warbler taken in 1958 outside of Charleston, South Carolina, um, of what is likely an older male with his head thrown back, singing away, and just displaying that grand old black patch on his throat. They would molt twice a year, uh, once in the fall, and when they would don more drab winter plumage, and once in the spring, where they would put back on their bright breeding colors. Juveniles don't achieve their full adult plumage until that second molt in the spring. Examinations of preserved skins of Backman's warblers collected from various different areas suggest that there were no subspecies. Uh, Backman's warbler from Mississippi was phenotypically similar to those on the Atlantic coast. Alright, so let's talk about the name. So the common name, um, it's named after John Backman. Uh, He was a reverend in Charleston, South Carolina, who lived from 1790 to 1874, uh, a very long life. Um, Pretty remarkable historical figure, actually. Uh, He was originally born in New York and then moved south, thinking the warmer climate would help with his tuberculosis-ridden lungs. There he met John James Audubon, and the two would go on to have both a professional relationship and a friendship, uh, sending letters and animal specimens to each other. This is how Audubon learned of and named Backman's Warbler. Audubon actually never saw one in the wild himself, but John Backman sent him the skins of several specimens he collected near Charleston in 1833. He also did this with another bird, the Backman's Sparrow. Um, This one, while not extinct, they are rather rare and have a pretty restricted range to just the southeastern U.S. Audubon and Backman's bond became even more strong when two of Audubon's sons married two of Backman's daughters. Yeah, and just by the way, Backman had a total of 14 kids, although five died in infancy. When the mother of all these children, Harriet Martin, died in 1847, he married her sister, Marie Martin, a year later. And John Backman sort of reminds me of Thomas Jefferson, in that he's like this really intelligent but also deeply hypocritical and conflicting figure. Uh, He was a Lutheran minister, but also was an early scientist and proponent of the nascent theory of evolution. He condoned slavery and ministered to African Americans, but was an unabashed confederate during the Civil War. He even wrote a book called Unity of the Human Race, in which he made... Oh my gosh, the controversial argument that blacks and whites were the same species. (laughs) The fact that this was even debatable, you know, is, like, appalling. Um, But I don't know. Like, it's, it's insane that somebody can... I mean, Thomas Jefferson the same way as this. Like, can write all this stuff, like, espounding, you know... Uh, that we should do, you know, we should just be one people and, you know, but still in their daily life just continue to go through all these racist things and support this racist society. So, I don't know, I'm sure there's lessons for today there, but uh, it definitely makes looking at historical figures, you know, more interesting and nuanced. But more than an ornithologist, Backman was a mammologist. Uh, Together with Audubon and his sons, he published The Quadrupeds of North America, that detailed 31 mammals new to science. A species of cottontail rabbit is even named after him, termed Bachman's Hare. Bachman died in 1874, three years after suffering a debilitating stroke that ended his public life. The scientific name for Bachman's warbler is Vermivora bachmani. It belongs to the genus Vermivora, which contains the blue winged warbler and the golden winged warbler. Vermivora means worm-eating, from the Latin vermis for worm, and varar meaning to devour. This species name, Backmallany, is self-explanatory, of course. If you read old accounts from the 1800s on this bird, you'll see it referred to as belonging to the genus Helminthophila, which means worm-loving, um, and seems to now be an outdated genus of what were termed swamp warblers. And that's because it could be found in the swamp. (laughs) Backman's Warbler was a bottomland swamp specialist of the southeastern US. Um, It could be found from eastern Texas all the way to southern Maryland. But being of the bottomland swamps, it was not found in the Appalachian Mountains. It did, however, stretch into parts of Tennessee, Kentucky, Illinois, and Indiana, where they border the Ohio River. In 1917, a breeding pair was seen near Indianapolis, Indiana. It especially liked habitats that had canebrakes. Um, this is an ecosystem type unique to the southeastern U.S. It's formed by a type of bamboo plant called Arundinaria Gigante. Canebrakes used to cover thousands of square miles in the eastern U.S., but suppression of wildfires, grazing by cattle, and the development of land has made them now an endangered ecosystem with only an estimated 2% of canebrake stands left. As this ecosystem disappeared, so did the species that relied on it, not just our Backman's Warbler, but also the Florida panther, Swainson's Warbler, and several unique species of moth and butterflies. Due to its reliance on these canebrakes, Backman's Warbler was described as a bamboo specialist. Another now extinct bird, the Carolina parakeet, likely also heavily relied on canebrakes. Backman's Warbler certainly wasn't just a bird of the thick cane breaks, though. I found an account from March of 1891 by esteemed ornithologist William Brewster, who observed Backman's Warbler amongst grandstands of mature, presumably cypress trees, covered in Spanish moss and growing out of the swampy water. When in these open tree stands, it seemed to prefer staying high up in the canopy. I also saw accounts of them feeding in sweet gum and maple trees, and they were always high up in the canopy of these trees, too. While migrating, it may have preferred woods with thick undergrowth over woods with clear understories, as reported by Mr. Atkins, who observed birds on a stopover in Key West during their migration. Just from the accounts I read, Canebrake made a very important habitat for them, especially during breeding. It appears that when they were in the thick undergrowth of Canebrake, they tended to stay lower to the ground, However, they also utilized the swampy, open tree stands, uh, like you see in a swampus, like you see in a cypress swamp, like what I'm sitting in right now. Um, when they were in these areas, you know, there's less cover underneath, so they tended to stay higher up in the canopy. And when they were wintering in Cuba, um, a lot less is known about what kind of environment they liked in Cuba. There's literally only like one or two accounts of. Uh, you know, Backman's warblers in in Cuba, but um, they noted to be located along rivers there. They also inhabited bamboo forests. The Zapata Swamp um, is mentioned as one of their favorites. However, they weren't just, you know, in the swamps in uh, Cuba because records of specimens collected from Cuba label the birds as being found all over the island, from the lowlands to the mountains of Oriente. There's one mention of Beckman's warblers in Cuba probing into the flowers of hibiscus. Um, There's like a a type of hibiscus uh, that's kind of native to Cuba and Caribbean islands and I think like Central and South America uh, that grows really tall. Like They're basically trees um, and they're called mayaguelas Um, and uh, they were known to probe into those uh, hibiscus flowers. But these trees were largely cleared and cut down during the development of Cuba. Um, especially for the clearing of sugar canes. And this may have been a huge part of habitat destruction in Cuba for these birds. So these birds did migrate during the winter, um, migrating from the southeastern U.S. down to Cuba. Uh, During migration, they likely traveled down the coast of Florida to the Florida Keys and then made that short little hop 90 miles across the Florida Strait to Cuba. I didn't see that explicitly stated anywhere, but I'm inferring it from an account from 1887 in March, where an almost certainly migrating female Backman's Warbler struck a lighthouse at night and died at Sombrero Key in the Florida Keys. Many, many songbirds migrate at night, so it's no surprise that Backman's Warbler also migrated at night. As I talk about in the breeding section, this bird was an early migrant. It arrived early in the spring from its wintering grounds and also left very early in the fall. There's a specimen in a collection in Richmond, Indiana that is labeled as having been collected February 27, 1898 in Melbourne, Florida. This specimen causes a lot of confusion because it's either a record of a super early migrant, or implies Beckman warblers may have overwintered in Florida. Um, John Dunn's Warblers of North America also refers to some reports of Backman's Warbler overwintering in the Okefenokee Swamp in Georgia, uh, but I think this is likely a stretch. According to John James Audubon, John Backman described the Backman's Warbler as a lively active bird gliding among the branches of thick bushes, occasionally mounting on the wing and seizing insects in the air in the manner of a flycatcher. This energy also carried over to its aggressive interactions with other birds. Observers noted that they were very feisty towards other species on both their breeding and migratory grounds. To kind of prove this, uh, during searches for Backman's Warblers in the 1970s in Francis Marion National Forest in South Carolina, searchers using playback songs of Backman's Warblers were met with loud scolding calls by Swainson's Warblers, who obviously weren't happy that this competitor was back in their woods. This like, you know, aggressive nature makes me think that maybe Backman's warblers were like the ogres of the bird world. I mean, they lived in the swamp, um, sounds like they were pretty grumpy and no other birds liked them. <laughs> Get out of my swamp! Males and females would raise the feathers on their head when excited or angry, giving them a lot of personality and overall giving their head a fluffy appearance. During migration, it could be found in mixed flocks with other warblers and also with year-round birds like tufted titmice and woodpeckers. I've talked in the show before how tufted titmice are termed nuclear species within mixed flocks, meaning other birds follow them. Early ornithologists and bird skin collectors recognized this also and would use the call of the tufted titmouse to lure Beckman's warblers within gunshot range. It was also said to sometimes feed like a titmouse, um, sometimes hanging upside down underneath tree branches to glean at the undersides of leaves. Another thing I saw mentioned over and over about this bird is that when it left a perch it would fly for a long distance before stopping again. This is to the frustration of people trying to observe it, because they would spend all this time wading through the swamp to get close to it. Then it would just fly far away, disappearing into the dark swampy woods. All right, so let's hear what our friend Arthur Allen has to say about Backman's Warbler. So he writes that its average length is four and one quarter inches. <laughs> um, he says, like Swanson's Warbler, Backman's Warbler was first discovered by Backman in 1833. Its nest was not found until May 14th, 1897, and its entire summer range has not yet been def- definitely charted. And it never was. <laughs> Its weak, chippy like song, its rather shy nature, and its inaccessibility of its haunts in heavily timbered swampland overgrown with briars with more or less stagnant water have combined to keep the species from becoming well known. Apparently, however, it is found in summer in suitable localities. Oops, my page flipped from the wind. In suitable localities from southeastern Missouri to northeastern Arkansas through western Kentucky northern alabama to charleston south carolina and probably also in southern indiana and eastern north carolina in winter the species is known only from cuba it crosses to florida early in march and returns to cuba as early as july belonging to our fauna for only about four months in the swampy thickets of its summer habitat backman's warbler builds its nest of dead leaves weed stalks and fibers in blackberry tangles or similar places And lays three or four unspotted glossy white eggs. So yeah, most of that pretty much (laughs) lines up what I'm going to say. There's also a little bit more nuance to some of those descriptions, which I'll go into. Uh, But let's talk about, you know, what these birds ate they're feeding. Uh, So like I mentioned early on in the description, it had an unusually thin and curved bill for a warbler, thought to be designed to glean insects off canebrake stalks. It was also theorized that the curved bill may have helped Bachman's warbler feed on hibiscus nectar or the insects within the flower. Um, I can't help but think of honeycreepers from Hawaii uh, with their specialized down-curved bills that they use for this exact purpose to drink flowers' nectar. So, like i don't know this is just like such a cool thought to think of like arthur allen said you know the bird is only here for four months to breed and really it spends most of its life in cuba and um, as i said when it's there it was observed spending a lot of time in these hibiscus forests so maybe you know it acts more like a normal warbler when it's in north america but then when it goes to cuba it's mostly feeding on, like, flower nectar and relying on that to survive and even evolve this down-curved bill that allows it to specialize on flower nectar. And so, you know, once those flowers were gone, it just could not survive for, you know, most of its time it's spending there in Cuba during its wintering range. So just something to think about, of course, this is just me spitballing? Just like, I mean, most people talking about this bird are spitballing. We really don't know much about it. And um, even when it's on its breeding grounds, it wasn't really observed feeding a lot. You know, most of the breeding ground uh, descriptions focus more on its, like, nesting behaviors. Um, Migrant populations, though, um, there's definitely a lot of descriptions about how, you know, they were feeding. And basically, they were feeding similar to other warblers, foraging on many kinds of plant stems and leaves, looking for bugs... They would occasionally dip down into the understory to forage for bugs, and sometimes even dip down onto the ground to, like, look in leaves. Examination of stomach contents revealed mostly insects and their larvae, but also a few seeds. But these seeds were thought to have been more of, like, eaten accidentally when they were trying to eat bugs. And just to go back to those Hawaiian honeycreepers, um, I just came back from Kauai, and you know, like in February, and uh, you know, was just so distraught about how many of those Hawaiian honeycreepers are are now extinct. Uh, you know, when you're a bird specializing on eating nectar, you are just so susceptible to environmental change. So, if that was true of Backman's warbler, it would make a lot of sense about you know how it went extinct so quickly and about its breeding. Really, this is just a handful of accounts um, for us to kind of infer things about its breeding. But uh, one thing we do know is it arrived very early in the spring to its breeding grounds, much earlier than most other warblers, um, possibly even you know the earliest of all the warblers. One theory about why you know they did this or um, why they were able to do this is because cane breaks you know it's, it's bamboo it remains green year round so they're able to come back early still hide in the cane breaks even when most other stuff in the forest is you know pretty much dead and doesn't have leaves yet you know just for example so you know it's Like, mid-March right now, um, I'm looking around this swamp, (laughs) you know, which maybe historically might have had some cane breaks, um, but, you know, right now it's pretty much just cypress trees and, you know, there's some green here and there, there's some underbrush, but for the most part it's just twigs. Like, I can see a good, you know, 30, 40 feet in each direction. Not much ideal habitat for, you know, a warbler to hide out in just to show a account of how early they are ready to breed um, i found an account from march 29th 1887 where a male backman's warbler was unfortunately shot by a collector near lake pontchartrain in louisiana and noted its testes were large <laughs> Birds have to remain as light as possible to be able to fly effectively so they only grow the reproductive organs when it's breeding time. And this warbler looked ready to go with big old balls. Um, And so this is, you know, late March. It's ready to, you know, make some babies. That's pretty early in the songbird world. There is some conflicting evidence to this though. Um, Our guy William Brewster, um, when he was along Florida's Suwannee River. Um, He examined some males and females, you know, dissected them and looked at their reproductive organs um, like a psychopath. Just kidding you. (laughs) You know, he's a scientist. Um, But um, he noted that both the males and females had small testes and ovaries. Um, He estimated they still had three to four weeks until they, uh, you know, were going to be able to breed. But he actually theorized that they were probably migrants headed further north. So, you know, maybe they were those ones that were going to fly all the way up to maryland uh, or northern virginia to breed and so you know they still had about three or four weeks till they could you know make it up there um so maybe that one in louisiana you know he's that's his spot so he's he gets there early he's ready to breed and then those ones in florida they they still had a bit of a trip to make So to go back to those canebrake stands, these were likely very important for their breeding. Again, little is well known and there's some conflicting observations. But a lot of accounts I read, they detail nests um, within areas of dense undergrowth and also detail a lot of nests that use canebrakes or are on canebrake plants. Bachmann warblers' two closest relatives, the golden-winged and the blue-winged warbler, are termed succession species because they breed in recently disturbed areas with lots of brush, shrubs, and young trees. Since these areas are eventually replaced by mature trees if left undisturbed, blue-winged and golden-winged warblers often shift to their breeding areas in order to find the right habitat. Um, They will also nest in colonies since the pickings are slim for appropriate breeding habitat. Backman's warblers may have had similar breeding strategies to these close relatives. I did find some accounts that do mention finding several nesting pairs of Backman's warblers uh, within the same habitat patch. There's also various mentions of territory size for Backman's warblers. Um, You know, there's really only three accounts that try to estimate it, and they range anywhere from 1.5 acres to 18 acres in size for the territory of a Backman's warbler. A guy named Wayne in 1907 described six nests of Backman's Warblers. Five of these nests were made with cane leaves, and two were made on the cane break plants themselves. And the cane or the underbrush that they were in really helped to conceal the nests. This is part of why they were such like a secretive species that was pretty poorly studied. In 1897, a naturalist named Widman had spent around a week going to a daily observation point before he realized that the whole time a female backman's warbler was building a nest just a few feet away from him. Most of the nests that are described are placed pretty low, only a few feet above the ground, and most of them amongst thick vegetation. Canebrake plants or blackberry plants seem to be the predominant ones. They are also usually placed above pools of water. An account by that same guy, Widman, in May, Um, he was observing um, breeding backman's warblers on Kolb Island in Missouri, and detailed the nesting behavior of a female backman's warbler. The nest was located in a blackberry bush that was two feet off the ground, woven of leaves and grass, and then lined with dark rootlets. These dark rootlets come up a lot. Um, they seem common to almost every Bachman's Warbler nest. And they said that these dark rootlets make a stark contrast with the eggs when they're laid in it. There's some theorizing that these dark rootlets were actually like dead strands of Spanish moss. And that Bachman's Warbler really relied on areas with Spanish moss to, you know, line its nests. This sort of makes sense, but, you know... Um, the full range of Backman's Warbler, like, it definitely extends above where Spanish moss is. Like, actually, where I am in First Landing State Park right now is, like, described as one of the northernmost areas that, uh, Spanish moss grows. So, I mean, there's Backman's Warbler described up in, you know, Fairfax, Virginia, and, you know, up along the Ohio River, and there certainly isn't any Spanish moss there, so really, who knows what these dark rootlets were. But, this nest that Widman found was tied to a blackberry branch and rested atop of another blackberry branch. The cup of the nest was so deep that when the female was sitting in it, only the top of her head was visible. She laid three white, unspotted eggs, laying one egg each day. I also found another account from Bear Swamp in Alabama in May of 1919, where a nest was discovered by Ernest G. Holt only a few feet off the ground in a blackberry bush. This blackberry bush was in a recently burned area, and like the other nest, it was near a pool of water. He even took a picture of the nest, which I'll post to the Dirty Bird Podcast Instagram page. So yeah, this is a very common thing with the nests. They usually try to make them in a blackberry bush or, you know, some other dense undergrowth. They're usually above a stagnant pool of water, and they are notoriously hard to find. Um, From the one account that details the nesting length of these birds, the eggs take 11 days to hatch and the nestling period lasts for 10 days. One account mentions observing a male feeding the nestlings, so it seems like both parents were involved in nestling care. Even after leaving the nest, juveniles were still fed by their parents, even when they could fly. Uh, I only know this from one account by Arthur T. Wayne, who in May of 1905 shot two young birds that were being fed by their parents outside Charleston, South Carolina. Apparently the young male was being fed by the male parent, and the young female was being fed by the female parent. So, like, you know, this is one account, but, you know, maybe this was the behavior this bird did is, you know, the dad's like, alright, I'll take care of the boy, you take care of the girl. Um, Arthur T. Wayne returned the next year to the same spot um, to try to find those parent birds again after he had murdered their children. (laughs) Um, um, He ended up finding two Backman Warblers nests, um, each containing four eggs. One nest was built in canes and the other in a bush. Both nests were also built in close vicinity to palmetto plants, which he described as hanging over the nests like umbrellas. So yeah, I mean, they were masters at concealing their nests. In both Arthur Wayne's account and Widman's, they note that the female is very bold when sitting on her nest. Uh, Widman nearly touched her before she flew away, and Wayne actually gave her a little poke to make her fly off the nest so then he could steal her nest and the eggs. Um, the nest, he said, was lined with soft Spanish moss. Nestlings seem to be able to fly at around five to six days based on the observations of Wayne, but were not fully fledged yet, especially in their tail. So like I said, they would migrate as early as the middle of July. Um, There was actually some migrants that were spotted in the Dry Tortugas, which is the westernmost point of the Florida Keys, in middle July. Um, This is likely so that they could arrive in Cuba before the peak hurricane season was in full swing. Love the sounds of those pine warblers singing. A lot of pine trees kind of surrounding the areas of Cypress Swamp here in uh, First Landing. And so the pine warblers love it. The song of the male Backman's Warbler was described as a rattle and similar to the northern perula, as I played earlier in the show. The chipping sparrow and also the worm-eating warbler were said to have similar calls too. Here's the chipping sparrow. And here's the worm-eating warbler. And here's Backman's Warbler again. To me, Backman's Warbler sounds a bit harsher in the middle of its song. Um, Definitely, these are very subtle differences between them. When singing, the male is described as raising his head, opening its bill as wide as it can, and shaking its wings in an excited manner. The male would also direct its songs in different directions, um, likely to both project his song as far as possible and disguise his exact location. Um, I heard descriptions that it created the illusion that the song was coming from many different trees even though it was coming from just one bird. Um, some people described it to like a ventriloquist. Um, this habit, again, frustrated many an ornithologist who could not spot a singing male Backman's Warbler despite being able to hear them calling close by. Older males appeared to sing more vigorously than younger males. They would also utter a zeep call that was similar to that of a black and white warbler. Um, I couldn't find the zeep call of the Bachman's Warbler, but here's the zeep of a black and white warbler. All right, y'all, let's take a dive into the evolution of these birds, then we'll talk about how they went extinct, um, and then we'll end the show on a lighter note, um, talking with Tanner about the search for the Backman's Warbler and the hope that it's still around. Warblers are part of the songbird order, Paso Reformes. We've talked about this multiple times on the show before, um, but specifically the, like, North American songbird clade that warblers are part of. Um, I do cover in my cardinal episode. Basically, it's a group that crossed over from Asia into North America via Beringia in the Miocene some 20 million years ago. The largest of these New World songbird branches is a superfamily called Emberizoideae and contains diverse species like blackbirds, Hawaiian honeycreepers, cardinals, New World sparrows, and New World warblers. You'll notice that I didn't mention Old World warblers here, Um, That's because they have their own distinct evolutionary history, very separated from New World Warblers, um, even though they look very similar. It's all convergent evolution. New World Warblers belong to the family Parolidae. Um, This is a huge family. It contains about 117 species. Not all of them are your classic warblers. The ovenbird and water thrushes also belong to this family. While most are migratory, there are some sedentary species. And one quick thing, there is one warbler that's not really a warbler. Um, It looks a hell of a lot like a warbler. It's called the olive warbler, but genetic studies have actually suggested that it's pretty distinct from Parulidae, and it has its own family. The classic model of New World Warbler evolution is that the family first formed in the Neotropics in the late Miocene. There's some debate about whether the ancestral species was sedentary or migratory. Uh, But I read a study from 2011 published in the Journal of the Royal Society that looked at genetic comparisons between migratory and sedentary warblers, and suggested that migration behavior was ancestral in warblers and the neotropical species later became sedentary. Oh wow, that was a loud one, that's gotta be apileated. the oldest warbler genus appears to be dendroica which is now called cetophagia uh, which contains north american warblers such as the blackburnian warbler and the palm warbler and also south american central american and caribbean island species two warbler genuses basalutaris and myoborus are entirely confined to central and south america making it likely that their early ancestors flew south to south america from their ancestral home in central america long before the Panama Land Bridge was formed 3 million years ago. The big explosion in warbler diversity came during the glaciations events of the Pleistocene, which started about 2.8 million years ago and were marked by periods of interglaciations. The linking of North America and South America also allowed species to more easily travel between continents and exploit new niches. But our Backman's warbler belongs to the genus Vermivora, and contains two other species that I mentioned earlier, the blue-winged warbler and golden-winged warbler. Like I said earlier, too, all three of these species have similar breeding habitats. They like that secondary growth forest, making it likely that their common ancestor also had this behavior. Studies of chromosomes for color pigmentation in these three species suggest the widespread yellow coloration of their body was also an ancestral trait. Genetic data suggests both Bachman's Warbler and the Golden-winged Warbler experienced a bottleneck, meaning a severe reduction in their population size with significant inbreeding in the early to mid Pleistocene. They then had a population explosion in the late Pleistocene. Blue-winged Warblers and Golden-winged Warblers are known to form a hybrid called Brewster's Warbler and Lawrence's Warbler. Um, It depends on, like, which one is the male and which one is the females for, you know, which, you know, type the hybrid is called. There's actually even been a discovery of Brewster's Warbler hybridizing with a chestnut-sided Warbler, um, which belongs to an entirely different genus. Uh, This is pretty bizarre. It was discovered in Roaring Springs, Pennsylvania. These hybrids led to some hope that maybe Backman's Warbler also hybridized and exist in some shape or form still in the wild but genomic typing has suggested that it was a reproductively isolated species. Now for the sad part of the show, let's talk about how it almost certainly went extinct. So the last time it was seen in Cuba was in 1981, it was a female, and then it also hasn't been seen in the US since 1988. Logging, damming of waterways, land development for housing and agriculture, and fire suppression seem to be the things that really, you know, put the nail in the coffin for this bird. Um, You know, logging, cutting down the mature, swampy bottomland forests, um, damming of waterways, since this, you know, was kind of a a swamp specialist bird. Um, If you change the rivers, change the waterways, then you're destroying habitat for it. Um, Cane break um, was apparently, like, really easy to clear and also had really, really productive soil underneath. So it was one of the first targets for settlers to clear in order to make agricultural land. And then fire suppression. These were birds of, you know, secondary forests. They didn't like these mature old oak trees no they'd like to fire to rip through and then like you know 2 years later a bunch of undergrowth and blackberry bushes to sprout up and that was perfect for them remember that description i said they they found a nest in a blackberry bush in an area that was recently burned so us humans, we don't like fire, so, <laughs> well, at least the, uh, you know, colonial settlers don't like fire. <laughs> you know, they brought along Smokey the Bear with them, a prowling and a growling and a sniff in the air. And uh, that was likely a cause of their demise also. Hurricanes, while they were on their wintering grounds in Cuba, may have also been a particularly devastating um, killer for them. Um, Not only because hurricanes, you know, knock down forests and destroy habitat, but there's like a lot of accounts um, in Cuba after big hurricanes um, just observing a lot of birds just like dead on the ground. And so it's likely that Backman's Warbler was among those. When colonists came over and started developing things, Uh, They may have initially benefited from these human disturbances, uh, especially selective logging. Backman's warbler study in the Mississippi bottomlands actually had a population explosion after selective logging was done. And this is because it created openings in the canopies that supported undergrowth. Selective logging means like loggers come through and they only take down like, you know, the biggest trees that are, you know, going to be the best lumber. They don't bother clearing all the trees. Um, and so you still allow some habitat for animals to survive. Another really interesting theory is that the extirpation and relocation of Native American populations may have also resulted in the decline of Backman's warbler. Native Americans, you know, we have this um, idea that Native Americans just lived in harmony with their environment, Um, but no, they were like any other human civilization. They shaped the world around them and fit it to their needs. A big way Native Americans did this was with fire. Cane breaks were important for supporting wild game populations that Native Americans hunted to survive, and likely they also used intentional fire setting to clear land for cane breaks. Cane breaks were also vital for their home construction, basket construction, and arrow making. Cane breaks actually have this root system that's able to survive wildfires, so even if the canebrakes themselves burn up along with trees and other plants in a wildfire, they will be some of the first to bounce back and quickly thrive in the absence of other plants blocking out their light. Um, they actually, their, their roots, you know, they they have rhizomes, so you know those stay okay underneath the ground and can sprout new plants. Canebrakes rely on frequent fires or frequent flooding um, in order to outcompete other plant species. If they don't have these disturbances, cane breaks will eventually be replaced by other vegetation and trees. Um, Just to reiterate this, they have like a really unusual reproductive method. Um, So they only produce seeds after several years of growth, and then they actually die after flowering. So this makes it so if a cane patch is extensively cleared and there are few mature plants left, it's almost impossible for it to reestablish itself. Because one... The plant itself that produces seeds then die. So like even if you have like, I don't know, like a little tiny patch of cane break left, the mature plants that are left there, they'll flower, you know, they'll produce seeds, but then they'll die. And the new cane breaks are unlikely to be able to outcompete other plants. So even the new ones, they're trying to grow a couple years, trying to become mature, but no, like, you know, the the trees around them are going to take over. The Ion Swamp in South Carolina was one of the last strongholds for Bachman's warbler. It was observed by a guy named Herbston in 1979. Interestingly, this was no mature virgin forest, but actually had been logged extensively. So, you know, like I said, they kind of thrive in areas of uh, of human disturbance, you know, if it's done in the right way. But it was always thought of as a rare bird. Um, It was notoriously difficult to find by ornithologists, even in the 1800s. Uh, Large large numbers were observed flocking together during migrations. There's also a theory that it could have been more populous than was previously thought, but since it lived in such dense, difficult areas to traverse, um, like the cane forests, like the swamps, it made it difficult for people to observe them. But when it was migrating, it was a lot easier to find. Um, I found an account from Brewster in 1891, Um, where he came across a flock of a thousand migrating warblers and he estimated that five percent of them were backman's warblers so just doing my rough math here that would mean that there were 50 of them i believe (laughs) Um, he also said though that it was easy to tell them apart from any other warbler um, which like from Every other account I read is not the case that they were easy to tell apart so either maybe he's bragging a little bit or he was like maybe mixing them up with some other lookalike species. Another proposed reason on why they went extinct is that they had very, very particular habitat requirements. So here's a thing that that people have said. They're like, yes, you know, they were a bottomland specialist. Yes, you know, they liked, you know, this dense undergrowth. But how come they went extinct while other birds like um, Swainson's warbler, um, you know, that have these exact same preferences, you know, are not extinct? And it may be the fact that they, like couldn't really adapt to new environments, um, and they may have just had very, very particular requirements, like even more particular than other birds. Um, That guy, Arthur T. Wayne, we talked about earlier, um, he observed that even within large swampy areas, Backman's warblers seem to be confined to a narrow strip where the swampy forest met areas of dense undergrowth brush. So it may be that to nest Backman's warblers required the underbrush, um, and the cane breaks, but to feed it required large areas of swampy forest. It also may have required the swampy forest to find high perches to sing from. A lot of accounts I read detail that males sing from high perches. So if they did require this very, very specific habitat, you know, swampy forests bordered by large cane breaks or large areas of disturbed underbrush. Um, It would have made it extremely difficult for Backman's Warbler to survive because both these ecosystems became increasingly rare during the late 1800s and early 1900s. And I'm just spitballing, maybe this is a reason that they were so aggressive too. Because, you know, they were constantly having to compete with other birds for their very specific ecosystem requirements. Overcollecting is proposed as something that may have contributed to their extinction. Um, so there are 300 specimens um, that are known to have been collected and exist. Um, they turn up also on the list of birds hunted for the miliary process. I talk about this a lot on my Roseate Spoonbill episode. It was a fashion trend in the 1800s and early 1900s of ladies having bird feathers in their hats uh, and resulted in mass killing of many bird species. <laughs> But really, it's unlikely that overcollecting played too much of a role in their demise. It definitely didn't help things, though. Finally, there's a theory that the extinction of Backman's Warbler was a long time in coming, and that humans were just the nail in the coffin. During the Pleistocene glaciation period, sea level was as much as 100 meters lower than it is today. This would have opened up a lot of potential land in Cuba, um, especially within the lowland Zapata Swamp where Backman's Warbler especially liked to overwinter in. It may have also, you know, opened up areas in like the Bermuda Islands and, you know, other Caribbean islands that would have been suitable for Backman's Warbler. So its wintering range may have been much larger. But as the glaciers melted away and sea levels rose, Backman's Warbler's winter range became smaller and smaller, creating a bottleneck for the population. Sightings of Backman's Warbler began to really dwindle down in the mid-1900s. There were two sightings in 1954 and 1958 in Fairfax County, Virginia. April 1962 is the last photo-confirmed sighting of Backman's Warbler. Um, This was taken in the Ion Swamp in South Carolina. I couldn't actually find this photo. Um, The last photo I could find was from 1958 taken by Jerry Payne and pictures a male Bachman's warbler in a pine tree. This is sort of unusual from all the accounts I read, like really you don't see backman's warbler in pine trees. Um, maybe this shows how the destruction of its preferred habitat pushed it to less preferential habitat that just couldn't support the populations. Around this time in the in the 1950s, 1960s, people were starting to wake up to the fact like, oh shit, this bird's going extinct. Um, But really, it was too little too late. In 1973, the Endangered Species Act passed, um, and in the late 1970s, there were a series of deliberations among the National Forest Service and Fish and Wildlife Service concerning establishing protective practices for Backman's Warbler in the Francis Marion National Forest and the Ion Swamp. But really, I mean, by this time, it was it was pretty much gone. In the late 1970s, there were several unconfirmed sightings of Backman's Warbler in the Ion Swamp, but no photo evidence. And like I said, 1988 is the last time it's reported in the U.S. And uh, this was a confirmed report, which I, I couldn't really find a lot of details on. I guess it means that like two people saw it and, you know, confirmed it. Um and this was in Louisiana. Again, I'm not sure exactly where, um, but, you know, nothing really since then. Um, I'll I'll go into in my section with Tanner about, you know, some of the more uh, dubious claims, Um, but in 2021, the Fish and Wildlife Service proposed to remove Backman's warbler along with 22 other species, including the ivory-billed woodpecker, several hawaiian bird species species of fish mollusk bivalves and one plant um, from the endangered species list and, and marking them extinct i always get sad you know when when an animal goes extinct um, but especially reading this list you know four of these bird species were native to the hawaiian island of Kauai, uh which i just recently visited um, like i mentioned and i, I went birding there too I plan to do an episode on the birds of Kauai soon in the future. Um, so it, it did break my heart seeing these very likely extinct birds, you know, the ivory-billed woodpecker, backman's warbler, and, and you know, these honey creepers too, on a list together. I'm just like, oh no! <laughs> like, I wish you birds were still around. So, I did read this very technical paper, um, that was working on creating a statistical analysis software model to help predict when and slash if a species went extinct and its range based on the reported sightings. Um, It's called Spatially Interpolated Extinction Date Estimators. Um, (laughs) And they used Backman's Warbler as their experimental prototype for their model. They predicted that the last persistence of Backman's Warbler was into the 1960s and 1970s, along Georgia and South Carolina coast, as well as surprisingly along Chesapeake Bay. So that's part of the reason why I really wanted to record in First Landing State Park, because, you know, we're right on the Chesapeake Bay here. This is a bottomland swamp. Um, It's got the stagnant water, like exactly like, you know, what's described in the accounts for uh, Backman's Warbler. And from what I could tell, First Landing Park has never been clear cut. Um, You know, there's like, been some development here and there you know the 1930s is when they made the park um before then like this was a popular place for um like (laughs) pirates to come and and uh you know colonists and stuff and uh, like ship you know people to stop and collect fresh water um so i'm sure they cut some wood too but um you know it looks it looks pretty pristine But like I said, you know, Backman's Warbler probably didn't just need the bottomland swamp. It needed the dense undergrowth area surrounding it. And I mean, this is Virginia Beach, you know, there's neighborhoods around here. There's military bases around here. You know, there's a freaking jet fighter aircraft like station. So, um, you know, likely even if this was the right bottomland swamp habitat for them, it didn't have the right underbrush cane break you know disturbed blackberry patches that you know it needed for breeding it would be so cool right now if a backman's warbler just you know landed landed right near me while i'm recording this <laughs> um, one random factor is that disease may not have been a big factor in their decline uh So, I found this account of a female collected in 1950 in Mississippi that was taken during a study for avian encephalomyelitis. I had never actually heard of avian encephalomyelitis, Uh, I looked it up, it's caused by peak cornavirus, which is in the same family of viruses that cause hand, foot, and mouth disease in humans. Basically, this virus um, infects the central nervous system of birds, it causes severe muscle weakness that in 50% of cases is fatal. But anyway, this researcher examined the blood of a female Bachman's Warbler, and not only did they find no evidence of avian encephalomyelitis, but no signs of blood parasites. This is one data point, it's not great science, but likely it wasn't a big factor in Bachman's Warbler's extinction. Alright, so now let's hear from Tanner. Let's talk about his search for Backman's Warbler and the slight possibility it may still exist. All right, I'm here with Tanner, and we're here to talk about hopefully that the Backman's warbler is still out there. Tanner, welcome to Journeybird Podcast.
1: <laughs> thanks, thanks, John. It's uh, it, it's great to be here. I've I've been a fan of yours for for almost a, a year now. I've been listening to your podcast during my workflow and uh, on long car rides, and it's it's definitely <laughs> you know your podcast are usually pretty long, so it makes it makes the uh, the time go by faster for sure. <laughs>
0: Well, I'm glad. I'm glad I helped out with the drives and with work. Uh, Tanner, do yeah. you mind just introducing yourself real quick?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, you've already said it. my name's Tanner. I'm uh, a fan down in Georgia, a little way south of Atlanta. And uh, my interest here in, in the in the Backman's Warbler uh, comes from kind of my interest in uh, extinct animals in particular, possibly extinct. And it's kind of an obsession of mine. Um, so that's really what kind of got me into birding, you know, several years ago. And, uh, the ivory bill woodpecker actually really got me into birding. And from there, I kind of just went crazy yeah. with it and started, you know, looking at mo- other extinct birds and, uh, and then Backman's warbler and then other birds that aren't extinct. So, you know, today I am a wildlife photographer in my spare time and my day job is actually finance, so I'm not a scientist <laughs> or anything like, like that, but um. yeah I love being out in the woods and uh, I go to some places that a lot of a lot of people don't always visit and go look for birds and that's my thing dude that is
0: awesome yeah I I totally feel you yeah, I feel like um I rebuild woodpecker pulls a lot of people in. it's like <laughs> but then I mean Backman's Warbler though I feel like it's so slept on as like an extinct mm. species you know because it's you know it's just one of many warblers but I mean, it's its own unique species. And then reading these accounts, like it was such a cool bird. And if it's gone, like we really lost a lot, you know.
1: Uh, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, you know, you've you've got over 50 different species of warbler in North America. And I think that is part of the reason why they don't get as much attention, especially the rarer mm. ones. Um, you know, like the ivory bill woodpecker was just, you know, this iconic bird that was you know, chased for decades by collectors and by even you know folk artists, uh, people wanting to to paint it, to photograph it, to collect it, and um, you know maybe the, the Backman's warbler isn't as, as physically stunning as this this huge you know woodpecker, but at the same time, you know you have a bird that is was arguably a rarer. Um, at, at the you know the turn of the the, the 19th century um then the ivory bill uh you know reflective of its own population size to begin with this was a bird that was probably never very common since the glaciation period um mm-hmm. but at the same time you know you have a bird that that was fun to observe. Apparently, it was you know very very jolly. Yes, yeah, described <laughs> as yeah, <laughs> described as you know hanging upside down from leaves and you know, singing and you know, swooping down for food. I mean yeah. warblers are just super exciting if you know how to look for them. And uh, I don't think I don't think Backman's warbler was any exception to that. I mean it was definitely a sight to behold, and all the artists and uh early uh, you know, ornithologists usually described it as a you know a very jolly and just fun bird to observe and i'm
0: yeah yeah i know i hope i do too <laughs> um i mean i i think there's still some hope you know i was kind of looking like uh you know there's been a lot of uh they call them lazarus species you know like species <laughs> they think are gone like the coelacanth yeah. is the classic example but i mean there was a bird too there was like the bermuda petrol that was thought mm-hmm. to be extinct and then uh it was found again. So, um, I, maybe, maybe pac Warbler is still out there and, you know, I have gone into this episode a ton about the kind of habitat it liked and how inaccessible it was. So yeah, you, you've done your own personal searches for it. Can you kind of go in about, you know, your searches, exploring the habitat, it, it, it would have once lived in and might still be in.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, as a disclaimer i am not one to say that the bird still exists i do have <laughs> hope though yes. um you know we hear all the time of species that have disappeared that you know come back or the the backman's warbler in particular uh from when it was first described it it hadn't been observed again since you know, 50 years later from the first time that we'd actually seen it so uh, and those ornithologists back in the day, they were they were really getting down the nitty gritty. I mean, they were trudging through swamps and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they, they really got out there. So, you know, a bird that could remain undetected for 50 years back then and, you know, go undetected for so long and with fluctuating populations, I just, you know, part of me has the hope that the bird still is out there. So uh, going into my search, I'd like to kind of paint for you a picture of a possible encounter that I, that I had with a Bacchus warbler. And this was actually in 2022 in November. And I was out in a place we call the Piedmont wildlife refuge. It's a, it's a federally maintained huge uh, refuge and not a lot of, not a lot of people are out there. It's mostly hunters. And this is Um, Georgia, right? Yeah, this is Georgia. Georgia. Yeah. So this is, this is just Northeast of Macon and Southeast of Atlanta. And it's uh it's really just out in the boonies, man. I mean, there's there's nothing going on out there, and this is uh this is potential habitat. Um, not a lot of old growth forests, but definitely probably some second and third growth forests there. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of a lot of river bottoms and uh, sparsely populated, I'd say, hardwood forest and maybe maybe a few cypress there. But it would definitely be. A uh, possible habitat for for a backman's warbler i think if not maybe one just passing through right so this was in november of last year and i went out looking for red cockaded woodpeckers because mm-hmm. this particular area is uh known for red cockaded woodpeckers the u.s fish and wildlife actually has a program in place where they help build red cockaded habitat out there and there's even a trail called the red cockaded woodpecker trail (laughs) so anybody can go out there i highly encourage it because the place really doesn't get enough love Mm -hmm. um so on on this cold day in uh, in november late november early december i don't remember the exact date it was in that time frame i was out uh doing going out for some wildlife photography it was a a cold day but down in georgia we we typically don't get any snow It was windy, and I was out uh, at about 8 a.m. I remember walking down one of the main trails. I was the only soul in sight, and the only person I had seen all day was a truck going the opposite direction. Wow. And as I walked down the trail, I remember it was just a a really magical experience. You know, you have those times where the birds are just singing. You know, Mm -hmm. it's usually early in the morning, maybe once at noon, and then, like, late into the evening. And the forest was just alive, uh, lively. I love that, Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a, it really is a magical thing, and uh, I remember seeing two northern flickers just going at it in a in a in a nearby hardwood, and they were they were squawking back and forth, and it, I was probably thirty feet away, you know, a few yards, and they, they really didn't mind me, and I, I stopped and took a few photos, and you know continued trudging on my way, and as I approached a a blind, I was going to go sit out in a blind to maybe observe some waterfowl. I was getting closer, and I spooked a couple wood ducks. Uh, I, I was a little irritated about that, but you know, wood ducks—they'll—they'll they'll fly at the, uh, the the slightest noise. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. They—they've been persecuted for hundreds of years here, you know. <laughs> so I, I would too if I saw someone carrying a a camera that looked like a giant barrel on the end, eye. <laughs> so I approached the, the blind there that extended over the lake, and I remember hearing this call that, that was very familiar to me and immediately it didn't jump out to me but backman's warbler's song is in my eyes it's pretty distinct i know it gets confused with some other warblers mm-hmm. uh in particular i think the northern parula Yeah. Yep. and um but i remember hearing this and there was this trill this insect like trill with mm-hmm. a with an accented note on the end yeah just like the backman's warbler and funny enough a few days prior I had just brushed up on the back of this warbler because that's just kind of what I do at night. You know, I'll, I'll stay up late and I'll just look at these these birds and extinct birds and <laughs> listen to their songs. I, you know, I'm a crazy person you know, when it comes to birds. I don't know. My girlfriend thinks I'm crazy.
0: So then it goes into your
1: dreams. You
0: just <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, you're... you
1: know, I, <laughs> I can't even deny that I've probably dreamt about the ivory bill I could, I could, more than once. Um, but on this occasion, I, I was not thinking about the back warbler, actually, yeah. it, it it wasn't even in my head. I was looking in particular for waterfowl and red-cockaded woodpeckers. Yeah. And I, so I heard this call and I, I just stopped and sat still for a moment. And I looked up into the canopies and I didn't see anything. Um, these were large, tall uh, hardwood trees. Uh, this is a hardwood forest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I waited and I heard the call again. And immediately I thought, wow, you know, that, that sounds a lot like Bachman's warbler. And I couldn't ration, you know, rationalize any other bird during this time that could make that kind of call. In fact, um, other warblers really weren't, aren't in this area during the during the winter and fall. We have uh, yellow-rumped warblers, which are common, and then the occasional, yeah. you know, pine warbler or sometimes orange-crowned and very rare vagrants. But that day, hearing that, and by the way, I never saw who was making it who was responsible as you know you know warblers they, they sit in the tops of the canopies during the morning waiting for the insects to come alive uh with the with the sun warming up the canopies and uh, you know it's just hard to spot warblers mm-hmm. so i couldn't i couldn't put a name with a sound and you know maybe it was just that part of me that that hopes the backman's warbler is still alive that you know came out and said hey that's backman's warbler but the other part of me feels like man it's very possible that that's what i heard maybe I yeah. yeah
0: i mean cuz like this is a bird that is like very poorly researched cuz like it was you yeah. know hard to research and then was here for just like such a small amount of time at least you know when uh uh ornithologists were studying it um and like you know there are accounts of it like kind of sketchy accounts of it wintering in the Okeyfenoki mm-hmm. swamp so i mean who yeah. knows it could have it could have like there could have been a cuba population but then there could have been a smaller winter population that wintered in georgia and florida or something and uh maybe those guys are the ones that are still
1: around like i I mean
0: really who knows with
1: this yeah and that's that's what got me you mentioned the the report of the oki finoki there was a vagrant account in oki in the oki finoki um it wasn't verified with any kind of photo evidence but a lot of these a lot of these claims aren't because you're talking about birds that are really hard to photograph.
0: Oh, and they're fast and yeah. Yeah. And classically backmans would perch somewhere, sing, and then just fly like 300 yards away. And this is like swampland. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So it's like hard to get through. So yeah. Can you talk more about like, you know, this, this environment that, you know, where you're looking at, like what it's like, what it's like to traverse.
1: So this particular area was, was on a, on a, on a lake that kind of eased into sort of a marshy area but this this whole entire uh refuge is only about 30 miles from one of the largest remaining strands of of pine break which which i found interesting so in this particular instance i wasn't searching for backness warbler but i i actually am planning on going out next weekend to the, this pine strand, or I'm sorry, this, this cane break that I, that I've described. And you can read about this too. It's no secret. It's, it's in some of the, the older literature from the seventies and eighties on cane breaks, hmm. but um, there is, a, there's a strand of about 700 acres of cane break that still exists in the bond swamp, uh, which is South of the city of Macon. Um, the bond swamp is also uh, federally protected land. That's home to a, one of the largest populations in Georgia of, I don't know. Can you guess similar to Bachman's warbler, same habitat. Oh, swainson's. swainson's swainson's warbler. Yeah. yeah. So Swainson's swainson's warbler is, is often observed out in the swamp in, in high densities actually. And it's uh, another species that is rapidly declining and we're not sure why, and nobody's giving it any attention. So yeah. this ha- this habitat is, uh, Cypress swamp, it is fairly difficult to navigate as it can get really thick, really, uh, really just difficult, especially as winter goes away and spring comes in and all the underbrush comes in. It's really hard to get to these these areas of cane break. Uh, mostly due to the fact that the ground is just mushy hard to navigate there are bears in this swamp oh (laughs) yeah yeah there's a black bear population as well as a wild boar and alligators so it's like not a lot of people are really (laughs) bears
0: and gators
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah not a lot of people are going out and searching this area and I find that evident by eBird data too. If you if you pull up eBird, there really isn't a lot of activity out there. and Most <laughs> of it is on the main uh, two trails that are, that are in the swamp. It, um, it, the swamp originates in the Okmulgee, uh, river, river basin or floodplain. And, um, it's really just a, a difficult to navigate area. There's a lot of cypress out there, bald cypress, um, that, in, in uh, Canebrake, like we mentioned, uh, strands of Canebrake are scattered across this swamp. Um, and this this entire swamp is only a couple thousand acres. But, you know, I found it interesting that this particular Canebrake is mentioned in literature. And apparently it existed in the 1930s as well and still existed oh. into the 70s and 80s. So this is an old strand of, of Canebrake forest. That pro- likely hasn't been touched uh, or mowed down since at least the 30s in my research, and still something I'm kind of digging into. Um, but it's definitely something I want to explore, and I'll be out there maybe this weekend and maybe next weekend before it gets hot and muggy, um, looking around for Backman's warbler. As as you know, it's one of the one of the first migrants to come back. Yeah, one of the early one of the earliest to leave. So you know, that late mid-March might be... Yep, this
0: is the time. <laughs> you know,
1: if it's there.
0: <laughs> well, if you become famous for rediscovering Backman's Warbler, remember <laughs> Dirty Bird Podcast, please.
1: <laughs> oh, I, I certainly will, and hey, if you're ever in the area, I, I invite you down, you know, we can, we can go out together and uh, if anything, do some birding, you know, there's some world-class birding to be done out in these swamps. Um, you know, we have red cockaded woodpeckers, which are a uh, highly sought after species. For yeah. They're still on
0: my lifer list. So yeah.
1: I, oh I, yeah. I so be down. Yep.
0: Um, I have a little fact for you that might give you a little bit of uh, hope here too. So, um, earlier in the episode, I talked about this study. I read that used used, um, spatially interpolated extinction date estimator, some (laughs) very fancy software to like, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) to like estimate um, where like Backman's Warbler, you know, used to be when it was, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, back into the seventies and stuff. And they also projected where it might be still, if like, if it persists, the most statistically like likely areas. Um, And they predicted that isolated populations Uh, Could remain still in coastal Georgia, South Carolina, the Mississippi Delta into Louisiana, and then just like this very broad stretch from North Carolina up to Virginia and Maryland, kind of like in the like center of those states. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, definitely the highest density was kind of uh, around coastal Georgia there, so
1: you're going to have to send me that, uh, that the link to that, actually. I haven't read about this because a lot of this data is kind of You really have to dig for it because a yeah. lot of people aren't really, you know, researching the Backman's Warbler anymore. So some of these cool things that, you know, like like what you just mentioned, go unnoticed. And I was actually in coastal Georgia just a few weeks ago in Jekyll Island, actually, which was Habitat oh, cool. at one point. Yeah, yeah. yeah some, some of the old artists mentioned Backman's Warbler being observed in Jekyll's Island. So uh, super cool. Okay. <laughs> all
0: right fingers crossed <laughs> yeah i
1: know i got
0: four of them <laughs> but um yeah it uh let's hope on that for sure and uh i think the the um search is probably some of the most thrilling part too and the thing is is even if you go out you're looking for backman's warbler you don't find backman's warbler you're still seeing lots of other bird species and just having your like senses heightened you know like you're uh you're observing a lot that you might not normally do and going into the habitats that you might normally go into. So it's, it's a that, lot of fun.
1: That is so true. I mean, and <laughs> to go back to one of our favorite birds, the, the ivory bill woodpecker, it, you know, Bachman's warbler and the ivory bill probably shared some of the same mm-hmm. habitat. So if you're one of those folks that, you know, still thinks the ivory bill is out there and you want to go search for it, the same time keep your alert out for the the backman's warbler because they possibly shared the same habitat and almost certainly crossed paths at some point it's a cool thought right
0: for sure yeah reading about how aggressive the backman's was i wonder if it was like this tiny little bird but still (laughs) if the ivory got near it it was like chasing it off or something
1: It's like a giant dinosaur, right? Yeah. I mean, oh yeah, and this this little guys were supposedly very aggressive, especially to uh, to other warblers. So yeah. I can't imagine what it would have thought if it would have seen like a giant ivory bill woodpecker, one of the largest <laughs> birds of North America, flying like, by. No, nah, I can take it. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. You got nothing on me. I <laughs> know.
1: Uh, <laughs> oh, that's hilarious.
0: Oh man, Tanner. Any um closing thoughts about backman's warbler your search for it or just like anything in general
1: you know one more th- one more thing i would like to add and that's for anybody listening out there is that you know if you're interested in searching for this bird i say go for it um you know the, the last surveys for the backman's warbler the real surveys took place probably in the 70s and the yep. 80s and and there were some more into the 2000s, but...
0: Yeah, in 2001 uh, they did one in Congaree. After in the Congaree, they, yeah.
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. And I will say, in regards to that search, you have to look at their methodology, and as I was reading about that search, they mainly stayed on the trails there. And a lot mm-hmm. of times, the habitat that this bird really, really lived in was in the dense cane break, which was often met with the, the edges of the swamp, where it kind of mm-hmm. turned into brush, and there's this these thickets. So there's, you know, even even if they did search the Congaree, you know, there's no guarantee that they would have come across a bird that was already exceedingly rare. I yeah. mean, if you and you combo that with the nature of warblers, um, they're hard to observe already. And this is this warbler in particular had eluded earlier ornithologists for years. I mean, they went decades without seeing this bird. So for them to go in and in March, by the way, they went to the Congaree at March. If they went in during March. Some of the yeah. backmas warblers might have just been reaching the shorelines of Florida, coastal yep. Georgia, and third. It South might be Carolina. a little too early. Yeah. They wouldn't have even been there yet. Right. <laughs> so you fast forward that into April, you know, maybe they were there. And you know, this is a bird that didn't really stay too long and took off in July. So, yep. in in August. So
0: four months. Uh, four months. Four months. US. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Barely anything.
1: Yep. And you know we don't we don't know how many ornithologists are looking for the bird in Cuba, and in particular, yeah. we don't even know where it was in Cuba. Yeah, there are very few accounts if if it even was in Cuba. I mean, we know it 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 probably stayed there, but it could have stayed in other islands. Too yeah, yeah. Winter time. Yeah, in there's like theories about
0: Bermuda. Yep, Isle of Pines. There's like one sketchy account that it might have been on the Isle <laughs> of Pines. Yep.
1: Yes. Yeah. So, so I'd say, you know, get out there if, if it's something that interests you and you, you know, you know how to do it safely and navigate forests. And, you know, I'm not encouraging anybody to get lost because these swamps are expansive, <laughs> But um, unless you're back in
0: then it's worth it. Then it's worth it. You'll, your
1: name will forever be commemorated. You'll be famous and they'll probably try to write books about you and uh, you'll be in the news. So <laughs> go go for it if you want the clout that comes with it. Right. <laughs>
0: Oh man. Well, it's been so much fun talking to you. Thank you for reaching out to me and suggesting this episode. I had a great time with it. I encourage everyone to, you know, let me know what birds you want to hear about. Um oh, yeah. and and thanks for your own personal search too. Um yeah, man. Uh definitely keep me updated on <laughs> on how it goes and and what other cool birds you see.
1: If uh if I make it out of the swamp alive, uh <laughs> you'll be the first one to know, okay?
0: <laughs> you'll have like a gator like clutched to one leg of a, a, a bear on the other
1: <laughs> Yeah, yeah run from wild boars and yeah, you know, yeah it's like it's like the gauntlet out there man it really is like, all right that's rough well, do, you, do you want to
0: close out the show man do you want to give the uh classic ending line
1: oh gosh no that's your job i, I don't <laughs> think i could do it I can't do that with the same enthusiasm. <laughs> I was just well, listening to that earlier, actually, on one of, your, one of your shows. And I was like, man, I just, I love how he goes through like a sequence and the, kind of does like the same thing every episode. I do.
0: <laughs> I'm a creature of habit. <laughs> yeah. Well, everyone, thank you for listening. Um, go search for Backman's Warbler or other extinct <laughs> species or just go, go birding in general. And as always, stay dirty, fellow birdies. <laughs> Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John, with my rotating panel of guests and co-hosts. Thanks for being on the show, everybody. The Dirty Bird theme song is by Ricky Pistone. Check out his groovy and hilarious music videos on YouTube. The outro music you're listening to right now is a song, New York Redneck, by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. The Dirty Bird Podcast logo is by the very talented T.J. And of course, a shout out to my beautiful wife, Lauren, who created my original logo. Check out the show notes for this episode for a full list of credits for any bird calls or sounds used in the episode. Thanks for listening.